Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be continuing our chat about Genghis Khan, who, as we discussed last week, of course, is one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen. And as ever, when we begin part two of any two-parter on this podcast, I'll remind you that you're probably better served going back and listening to last week's episode if you haven't done that already. I mean, look, you know, I can't tell you what to do. I'm not your dad. And unless you're my future kid listening to me, like, listen to this podcast years after I recorded, in which case... Hello, child. Please make sure you put sunscreen on when you go outside. Uh, please do that. Anyway, um, quick refresher for those who've had a busy week, forgot all about last episode. Uh, Genghis Khan, born around 1162, probably, as the son of a noble in uh, a tribe that lived on what we today call the Mongolian Plateau. And the reason that we call it that is because of this bloke. Named Temujin at birth, he ended up leading his tribe, the Mongols, to utter dominance over all the other tribes on this plateau. And after an early life racked with poverty and misfortune, Temujin rose to lead the Mongols against the Tatars, the Naimans, the Karyads, all these other powerful rival tribes, and he thrashed them all. No worries at all, mate. And Well, some, some, listen to last week's episode, some worries, but we got across them. Anyway, 1206, he took the title Genghis Khan, which roughly translates to universal ruler, and he was off and away. He reformed his government with a large number of, of reasonably forward-thinking measures, certainly ahead of their times in many respects. Um, most notably, Genghis Khan broke the mould when it came to ethnic and, and racial and class distinctions in his government. As long as you were loyal and as long as you were good at what you did, under Genghis Khan you could rise through the ranks, no worries at all. But all of his progressive reforms, of course, were paid for in blood, a lot of blood. And Genghis Khan, he could be a murderous butcher when he needed to be, as we're going to hear about today. We're going to talk about the back half of his career when he left what uh, we now know as Mongolia to, to conquer parts of China, Khwarezmia, the lands beyond all the way basically into Europe, Eastern Europe. A lot to get across today, of course, but before we begin, another quick thanks to alert listener Mason who suggested this topic last week. Good on you, Mace. But here we go. Let's get stuck in. Second half of Genghis Khan's story. Let's get to it. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1206, of course, where we left Genghis Khan last week. He's sitting pretty. He's the universal ruler of the Mongols and their plateau. Easy peasy. But of course, there are more lands yet to conquer, aren't there? Now, last week, you remember the old enemies of the Mongols, the Tatars. They had at one point allied themselves with the neighboring Chinese Jin dynasty, who uh, you know sought to take the Mongols down a peg or two. Now, this backfired ferociously on the Tatars. Um, uh, the Chinese neighbors... Uh, however, the, the jinn, they got out of this situation. The Tatars were kind of wiped off the face of the earth, more or less. But the, the, the jinn dynasty managed to escape from this, uh, this misstep without having it backfire too badly. And then they're still kicking about. So the neighbours at this point for uh, the Mongols to the south, we've got the jinn to the southeast and the western Shah to the southwest. Right Now, all Genghis Khan sees when he looks at these blokes down the south, southeast, southwest just a big row of asses, ripe for the kicking, right? So after a couple of years settling into his new position as universal ruler after these you know, political, cultural, military reforms that I talked about, Genghis Khan decides that it's time to go on the offensive yet again. And so he gets his army into gear and he kicks off the Mongol conquest of China. Now, first up, he's going after the Western Chart. He's not going after the Jin dynasty, despite you know the fact that they had uh, really done him dirty, well, attempted to at least with the Tatars years ago. He's going after the Western Shah instead. 
Genghis Khan saw these people as a relatively soft target, um, made all the softer, I might add, by the fact that his forces had been raiding their borders for years and years. So he thought this would be a relatively, a rel- you know, relatively easy one to, to, to sort of cruise into the business of international conquest. So he's had enough of these raids. He softened them up enough. In 1209, Genghis Khan, he rode southwest with tens of thousands of mounted archers primarily. Most of the Mongols were on horseback. Most of them were very proficient with, uh, with the bow while, uh, while riding a horse. And uh, this overwhelming military superiority will obviously become, well, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the driving force behind uh, most of the stuff that, uh, uh, that Genghis Khan did throughout his career. Horseback archers propelled his armies across countless, countless leagues. So here they are right now, uh, tens of thousands of them, as I say, riding southwest towards the Shah. Now, the Shah are quite worried. They, they're quite concerned about this. So they got in the blower with the djinn. They say, look, bloody hell, mate, listen here. The Mongols, they're bearing down on us. Can you send us some spare troops? Because we might be buggedy. I reckon they're going to give us what for. But the jinn, right, they hear that the Mongols are coming to invade the Western Shah. And, they, and this was their response, right? Absolutely cold-blooded. Here's what they said. <clears throat> It is to our advantage when our enemies attack each other, wherein lies the danger to us. So absolutely cold-blooded, basically saying deal with it yourselves because we're not interested. But it wasn't only cold-blooded, also very short-sighted, as we'll come to directly, don't you worry. Anyway, Genghis Khan marches into the lands of the Western Shah, captures and plunders cities like nobody's business until he arrives at the capital, Yinchuan. Right? Now, Yinchuan is estimated to have held about 150,000 troops. Right? These, these blokes are all there ready to defend their capital city. This is twice the size of the Mongol forces. But Genghis Khan, he took the city anyway. Now, have a listen to how he did it because you're not going to believe this. It's incredible. Check this out. Right? The Mongols at this point, very inexperienced with siege warfare. I mean, it makes sense. They had no need for it with their background of fighting as nomads on the plateau. They didn't have big walled cities to attack or defend, so they never learnt how to attack or defend them, right? And in this in this case, the fact that Genghis Khan wasn't particularly skilled in siege warfare meant that he didn't take what would have been an orthodox approach to attacking this city, right? He took, in fact, a very unorthodox approach to it because after months of besieging the city rather inexpertly, Genghis Khan goes, well, bugger this for a joke. We're making no progress here, right? We're going to we're gonna have to do something new. All right, you blokes, get your shovels off to the river. Let's go. He marched his troops to a nearby river and he ordered them to start digging trenches and canals. He then diverted the river to flow into the city using the existing irrigation system that the Jean had, had already dug in order to direct the water you know, across their, their fields and, and crops and pastures and whatever else, he redirected even further into the city itself. This incredible plan was also completely unsuccessful. Unfortunately, it just didn't work. Turns out the Mongols weren't the most talented civil engineers, and so one of the dikes that they'd built to redirect the water broke, um, and not only did this bugger up the plans to flood the city, the water also wiped out a Mongol encampment. So a bit of an own goal there from Genghis, old mate. But funnily enough, redirecting the river, or at least attempting to in this way, actually led to the downfall of the city all the same, not just in the way that Genghis Khan originally planned. Because I mentioned before how we use the existing irrigation system, right, to attempt to flood the city. Well, even if he didn't flood the city, he did flood, you know, the crops and pastures and whatever else that the Shah had been uh, had been planting and working on and essentially wiped them all out. And this, I mean, in conjunction with the fact that the city was under siege, in conjunction with the fact that the, the jinn just were refusing to come to the help of the Shah, the Western Shah realised that they were stuffed. 
And so they surrendered in 1210. They had no food, they had no way out. They were surrounded by uh, by the Mongols here and the game was up. And so, I mean, that was it. GG, no read. The Jar Emperor was forced to submit to Genghis Khan as his new vassal. He offered him one of his daughters as a wife as part of the peace treaty. I mean, last week we talked about how Genghis Khan had, you know, a lot of wives and generally whenever he'd conquer somewhere, he'd end up with a new one. I mean, some people collect fridge magnets from the places they visit. Genghis Khan looks like he seems to, he seems to have collected wives instead. Anyway... That was that. The conquest of the Western Shah, great result for Genghis Khan. Um, uh, not only did it give him a strong foothold from which he could launch, for, launch further invasions, it also brought part of the Silk Road under his control. And this major trading route made a lot of money. And of course, the Mongol coffers swelled as a result. So he's done very well with this foundational victory here in the Western Shah. And now that they are taken care of, now that they're, uh, you know, they've been looked after in this way, where's next? I mean, you've already probably guessed. The Jin dynasty, so confident that the Mongol Shah War didn't affect them at all, right? They were so confident this wasn't going to have any negative uh, repercussions for them and how wrong they were because they are next on the chopping block. Um, although you might not think so based on the way that they behaved because... They sent ambassadors to Genghis Khan, right, around this time in 1210. They demanded that he surrender as a vassal of theirs. I mean, the abs- I mean what a gutsy move from, from the Jin dynasty going after this bloke who's just taken down the, uh, the Shah and saying, well, listen, mate, it's time for you to surrender to us. You've just taken care of these, uh, these enemies of ours, so now it's time for you to bow down. I mean, absolutely not. This is not how it works. Genghis Khan spat at the feet of the ambassadors. This was tantamount to a declaration of war. And in 1211, that's exactly what happened. Genghis Khan, off again, hungry for conquest, leaps astride his horse, and uh, let me tell you, some of the jinn, they read the writing on the wall. If you'll believe it, many high-ranking jinn officials actually jumped ship. They realized what was going to happen. They realized which way the wind was blowing, and they defected to the Mongols. There was one defection in particular that was absolutely disastrous for the Jin, right? So the Jin, they were holed up. There was an army uh, defending a mountain pass and the Mongols approached. This is the, the, the way that the Mongols wanted to take to get into the Jin heartland. So they approached this mountain pass and the commander, the Jin commander, he sent out a messenger to the Mongols telling them, you know, all the usual stuff. You've got no chance, surrender now, blah, 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 all that nonsense, right? But this messenger you know, speeds off, goes to meet the Mongols and then didn't come back. This Mongol switch, oh, sorry, this messenger, this Jin messenger became a Mongol. He switched sides. He gave Genghis Khan all the details about the Jin forces holding the pass, how many there were, where they were situated, what their battle plan was. And I mean, last week, you remember, we talked about how much Genghis Khan valued military intelligence. Armed with all this information, he routed them. He completely routed the Jin at the pass. He killed them in their thousands. And so as Genghis Khan continued to march on towards the, the Jin capital, Zhongdu, which is modern day Beijing, other Jin vassals also defected. They rose up against the Jin. They took the fight to them along, uh, along with the Mongols. And so when the Mongols arrived at Zhongdu and, and besieged it, the Jin dynasty was in absolute chaos. Genghis Khan, he'd boned up on siege warfare by now. He'd listened to those more knowledgeable than him. He'd learnt the ins and outs of how to take down a city. I mean, look, the siege still took a long time. It took years, in fact. But all the while, the Mongols pillaged and plundered northern China. Any part of it that remained loyal to the Jin dynasty was a, a valid target, and the Mongols went at it with both hands, mate. Although, once again, he I mean, Genghis Khan found plenty of areas led by regional powers that were happy to defect to the Mongol Empire, and, and so even with Zhongdu holding out, Genghis Khan's realm still grew. But eventually, in 1215, the Jin lost Zhongdu. After years of being under, under siege, they couldn't hold out any longer. One historian even claims that because they didn't have any more ammunition for their cannons in the city, 
they made shot out of silver and gold and fired that at the Mongols. That's how desperate they were. But I mean, look, the Mongols, they don't mind that. I mean, it saves them time and effort when it, came to the, when it comes to the looting and the pillaging, right? Anyway, Zhongdu fell. The city was sacked. What remained of the Jin, they fled south. They set up a new capital and they stopped attacking the Mongols, attempting to batten down the hatches and, and minimize further losses. So this is two from two. Genghis Khan, he continued campaigning against the Jin, but they held out to the south as the years passed. And ultimately in 1218, Genghis Khan decides enough is enough. He decides to cut his wins, I guess. He wasn't doing a lot of losing at this point. Uh, and he turned his attention elsewhere. And where he turned his attention to was another realm to the, uh, to the west, to the southwest, the Karakitai. But by 1218, his armies were exhausted. They'd been fighting nonstop for almost 10 years. They want a bit of a breather. They want to sit down, just relax and take a load off here. So Genghis Khan says, mate, no worries. You've been working very hard. You blokes have a bit of a rest. There's something else I want to take care of. It's more, more personal, a bit of a side quest, this one, right? So he leaves the bulk of his army to rest and recover. And he sends off 20,000 men, just a small fraction of his overall army, if you'll believe it, just 20,000 men, just you know, not too many. Uh, and he sends them off under the command of one of his generals. He sends them off west to a region known as the Karakitai. Now, the Karakitai is sometimes referred to as the Western Liao. It had caught Genghis Khan's attention for a very good reason. Now, you remember last episode uh, in 1204, Genghis Khan uh, defeated a rival clan on the plateau called the Naimans, right? another tribe. And their leader, Kuchluk, right, he had fled the, the Nauman homelands after it was taken over by the Mongols. And he had ended up to in, he fled to the Karakatai. He ended up in the Karakatai. And he was taken on there as a military commander. Um, and he repaid this kindness, the fact that these, you know, the people, these people took him in and, and, and allowed them, gave him a, a, a you know, a position of, of great responsibility leading, the, leading their armed forces. He repaid this kindness by engineering a coup against the bloke who had welcomed, in, welcomed, in, uh, welcomed him into his realm. And in 1213, he overthrew the existing government and took control of the Karakitai. And let me tell you, it did not go well for him at all. Kuchlug began a campaign of religious persecution. I mean, always a good thing to do against a, a newly conquered populace. Uh, in direct contrast, by the way, I might add to Genghis Khan, who, as you remember, was very tolerant of different religions within his realm. And in doing this, Kuchlug very quickly eroded any potential popularity that he might have had in his new realm. It's, uh, it was weak, it was unstable. By 1218, Genghis Khan, he realised he's got a very simple and straightforward opportunity to muscle in here and also, you know, defeat this bloke, Kuchlug, once and for all. And so he sends in these 20,000 blokes, his general GB as well, and uh, they set about the invasion of the Karakitai. Very cleverly indeed, I might say. They, don't, they didn't just, they didn't just uh, ride in there looking for battle and, and ready to, uh, to fight at the earliest opportunity. No. Instead... They rode around, right, and drummed up all of this, uh, all of this, this anti-Kuchlug sentiment that was already at, at boiling over point, essentially, right? They've come along and they've they've started going, oh, you know, bloody this dickhead who's moved in, he's taken over you blokes, he's not giving you the right of uh, of worship, whatever else, he's he's suppressing your religion and all that sort of thing, and. Uh, you know, let me tell you, have you heard the good word of, uh, of your friend and mine, Genghis Khan? He doesn't care. He doesn't care who you worship. He doesn't care how you worship, mate. Unlike, uh, unlike old mate Kuchlug, you back us, we'll kick this bloke out and that'll be that. The people of the Karakitai, who, as I've mentioned, they're not a fan of Kuchlug. It didn't take them too much to kick off. They rose in open rebellion and, and they honestly did most of the Mongols' work for them. I mean, Jebe and the, the 20,000 Mongols, they obviously fought in various battles they had to to take down the Karakitai, but... For the most part, this was essentially just 
an insurrection that had been fermented by the Mongols moving into an already unhappy populace. Kuchluk's rule fell in an instant, and once again he took to his heels. He fled, although this time I'll tell you this, he wasn't, he wasn't going to get away a second time. The Mongols pursued him across the mountains. Eventually he was uh, caught by some hunters. He was turned over to the Mongols, the Mongols, and they promptly killed him. They executed him, and that's that. Not, uh, th- there, was no, there was no third time for Kuchluk this time around. Anyway, seizing control of the Karakatai, uh, it might feel like something of a side quest, you know, particularly as Genghis Khan didn't even make an appearance himself. But let me tell you this, it was a critical part of the Mongol Empire's continued success. And I'll tell you why. Long-time half-assed history listeners will have been waiting for this point because, of course, with the conquest of the Karakitai complete, the Mongol Empire's borders now came up against Khwarezmia. And that's right, episode 17, one of the first, the Mongol conquest of Khwarezmia. Man, those early episodes are bad. But that one will run you through all the grisly and gory details of what happened next. But for those of you who understandably don't want to listen to any of the episodes pre say i don't know episode 30 they are really bad take it from me uh, we'll do a quick recap here so the Khwarezmian empire at this point huge realm spanned all the way from azerbaijan to pakistan from from afghanistan to the arabian sea massive it was huge absolutely enormous and before old mate genghis rocked up it was one of if not the most powerful muslim nation on earth but not for long in one of the bloodiest wars in human history genghis khan tore his way across Khwarezmia, killing millions upon millions of people as he did so. History, broadly speaking, has taken a pretty positive view of Genghis Khan overall, I would say. I mean, there are certain parts of the world in particular where he's held in less high esteem, certainly, but for the most part, he is remembered, broadly speaking, positively. And, you know, I suppose... It happened long enough ago that we don't feel the weight of the millions of deaths that he caused. The the numbers are so big that they feel a bit meaningless. But he does really seem to have gotten away with it here because this bloke perpetrated some of the some of the largest scale killings the world has ever seen. I mean, his his total body count by the end of his career is estimated to be as high as 60 million people, although that is certainly on the upper end, more conservative estimates put it at just, just, just only 40 million. I mean, huge numbers, meaninglessly large numbers to our puny brains. But he does seem to have come away with it with, as I say, a broadly speaking positive, or at least mixed to neutral reputation. I mean, how's this for a bit of spin, right? We want to find a positive for this bloke that involved, you know, that, I mean, we talk about the meritocracy and all the rest of it, but how about this one? Here's, here's a, a beautiful bit of spin, right? Genghis Khan, right? Ecological warrior and dedicated environmentalist. You might have heard that Genghis Khan killed so many people that it actually affected the climate. This is true. It's completely true, believe it or not. The populations that were annihilated by the Mongols, like those in Khwarezmia, they stopped doing things like chopping down trees to clear space for farmland. This meant that there was a period of reforestation once Genghis Khan was finished and as forests regrew and as nature reclaimed abandoned farms and pastures, this absorbed hundreds of millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now look, I don't know how well the idea would be received these days, even in the middle of a climate emergency, but killing tens of millions of people across a lifetime of conquest did, after all, have some silver linings when it came to at least the the climate of the earth. 
it's really weird that we laugh about this also. Like, it's it's strange to think that 40 or so million deaths is something that we can just kind of breeze over in a frothy internet podcast like it's nothing. But, I mean, that's what 800 years does, I suppose. The, the great vast distance of history between now and then makes it a lot easier to stomach the fact that this bloke was one of history's greatest killers and we can sort of sit here and just have a bit of a laugh about it, you know, eight centuries later. Genghis Khan he emerged with his reputation intact, a respected rather than reviled leader and conqueror. But anyway, in Charismia, as long-term listeners will remember, Genghis Khan was at, at his very worst, I think, in, in this respect. He sent emissaries to Charismia seeking a trade deal. The Charismians responded by shaving most of the emissaries and killing another one of them. And Genghis Khan took that personally. You see, he launched an all he launched an all-out attack on the Chrismian Empire, and while the Chrismians hold up in their cities and attempted, attempted to defend themselves from the Mongol hordes, this wasn't anywhere near enough to protect them, and millions upon millions of people were killed or enslaved. And at one point, the Mongols may have even built a pyramid out of the severed heads of the Chrismians that they'd killed. I mean, blood and guts and horrible murder, particularly horrible this time around. Episode seventeen, get across it. Anyway. By 1220, the conquest of the Khwarezmian Empire was complete, and the Mongol Empire now stretched all the way from the Yellow Sea in the east to the Caspian Sea in the west. But as part of the cleanup operation in Khwarezmia, uh, Genghis Khan sent some of his generals even further west, pursuing the Khwarezmian leader as he fled his ravaged lands. And uh, in doing this, his generals ended up in Georgia. I mean, you remember our mate Tamar the Great from episode 199, uh, get across it. She had died just seven years previous to the arrival of these Mongols. And her son, King George IV, he scrambled to defend his realm from these Mongol incursions. Now, this wasn't a proper invasion. This was more of a fact-finding mission that did result, again, in you know thousands and thousands of deaths. But uh, Genghis Khan sent his generals a long way forward out to the West to discover, to learn things, to bring back military intelligence and, and information. You know, it was, it, was, it was basically a recon job to come back with, uh, with information so he could base his next decisions, where he was going to go, what he was going to do. And so, as I say, generals ended up in Georgia, King George IV scrambling to defend his realm, but you can probably guess what happened, because in 1221, the Mongols raided, pillaged across the Georgian countryside, old mate George forced into open battle with them, and he got his ass handed to him. The Mongols had only sent a fraction of their forces into Georgia, but even that was too much for Georgia to overcome. They were absolutely obliterated. George IV died of the wounds that he received in the fighting. But this didn't slow down Genghis Khan's armies in the slightest. He ordered them to push further and further. As, as I say, very characteristically, he wanted more information about the lands to the west in order to plan a campaign against them. So the Mongols, they encircled the Caspian Sea. They pushed all the way to the Black Sea, if you'll believe it, going so far west here, uh, where in Crimea, they fought against the Italians. There was a Genoese trading fortress there that the Mongols sacked and looted and pillaged. Uh, and then ultimately, the Mongols spent the winter of that year at, at, in the Black Sea before uh, heading back eastwards towards where Genghis Khan was encamped, uh, where, you know, just for good measure, they fought a battle against people from the Kievan Rus on the way. You know, again, just for good measure. They took plenty of prisoners during the battle. Uh, some of them were nobles. You might remember last week how Mongol custom decreed that nobles should never have their blood spilt when they were executed. So these poor princes from the Kievan Rus that were taken prisoner... They got to enjoy... Well, no, you know, let's look at it more positively. These princes got to enjoy a, uh, a rich cultural experience. You know, this is it's, it's the exchange of ideas and customs, traditions and cultures here. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. These blokes, they were tied up. 
they were put underneath a large wooden platform and then all of the victorious Mongol generals sat on top of the platform to have their dinner and crush these poor princes to death. So, uh, no, look, yeah, a, a very a rich cultural experience for everyone, everyone involved. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the cultures of East and West coming together, bringing people closer to each other. And in the case of the princes, bringing them a lot closer to themselves as, as well. Anyway, look, all, all of this fighting and, and these battles, they weren't full-scale invasions, as I say. Just reconnaissance. But the Mongols, they'll be back in due course. Don't you worry about it for now. Genghis Khan, however, recalled his generals, recalled his troops back to Mongolia, all the way back to the heart of the empire, because he wanted to plan this grand campaign westward. He'd heard from prisoners and captives about the fertile fields and the green pastures that lay beyond into Europe, and he wanted a slice of them for himself. However, before he could do any of that, he had to deal with some issues back closer to home because trouble was brewing in Western Xia. The Western Shah had refused to help Genghis Khan in his campaign against Khwarezmia, which hadn't impressed him, but he couldn't do much about it as he was, you know, fighting a very bloody war of conquest. The Western Shah, after having signed up as vassals to the Mongols, ended up not being as, as pliable and as obedient as uh, Genghis Khan had hoped. And so, now that all the fighting was over out west, and now that he had a bit of breathing space, he used it to uh, jump back on his horse and keep fighting. This time, his vassals that were out of line. Genghis Khan rode into the Western Shah territory. He was determined to show him who was boss. And uh, look, several parts of this region had started to think about rising in rebellion against their Mongol overlords. They weren't necessarily happy about being part of the, the, the Mongol Empire. So you won't be surprised to learn that Genghis Khan, I mean, he didn't have much, he didn't have any time at all for ideas of that sort. And so he marched in there like a bat out of hell and uh, captured rebellious cities, crushed rebellious armies, and then just for good measure, executed every last member of the Western Shah's imperial family. Remember, this is the family that he married into when they surrendered a decade and a half ago, and now he is killing them all just to get them out of the way. Not the family reunion I think anyone was really hoping for there, you'd have to say. But it goes a long way in supporting what we've been saying about Genghis Khan. This was a bloke who didn't care about where you came from, what your background was. He didn't care about uh, a lot of other things that people held very highly, status, uh, class, race, ethnicity. He cared about loyalty, he cared about effectiveness. And if you were foolish enough to raise your banner in rebellion against him, I tell you what, you, you were going to pay the price for it. And uh, his reprisals against the Western Shah, they were meant to continue in, even after the death of the imperial family. Um, but Genghis Khan never saw it happen. In 1227, while he was campaigning against the Shah capital of, of Yinchuan, Genghis Khan died. And if we accept that his year of birth was 1162, he was 65 years of age when he met his end. And, and even at that age, it seems as though this, this was unexpected and came as a surprise, even if history can't actually agree what he died of. We know that it was surprising that he died, but we don't know how he actually died. Some say it was a wound that he sustained in battle. Some say it was a hunting accident. Others say that he was assassinated. But interestingly, a historical study that was released only last year in 2021 found that he probably died of bubonic plague. But look, whatever it was, the life of this great conqueror was finally brought to an end, and he was buried in an unmarked location. In keeping with Mongol tradition, we don't know where his final resting place is as a result. It's probably somewhere near Birkenkaldun, the mountain near which he was born, but we don't know where, 
And it seems that the Mongols took measures to actually actively hide the location. Marco Polo wrote, wrote about how all the people who escorted the body to its resting place were killed and then how those people were killed by another group of people and they then killed themselves to make sure it was kept completely secret and no one knew where the body had been buried. That probably didn't happen. Um, and it also probably, it, also the stories about, you know, a river being redirected over his his grave or a forest being planted over it. Also, these probably aren't true. But the bottom line is we don't know where he was buried. We probably never will. And because that's what he wanted all along, I don't really see an issue with that. But after Genghis Khan's death, his realm was divided amongst three of his sons. You remember last week when we talked about Borte, his, his primary wife, the four sons that they had together. Jochi died, his eldest died in 1226, before Genghis Khan did. Uh, while Chattagai was actually passed over by his father, as years previous, Chattagai and Jochi had, had fought physically. They'd, they'd had a brawl over who would succeed their dad. And this crap cost them dearly because it meant that they were both passed over in the line of succession by their father and it ended up being Urgadai, uh, Genghis Khan's favourite son, who succeeded his old man as the Great Khan, while Chattagai, his older brother, inherited the westward Mongolian possessions and Tului, as the youngest and in keeping with Mongolian traditions, inherited his dad's principal holdings in Mongolia. But under Urgadai, the Mongol Empire continued on the path that Genghis Khan had set it, had set it down. They returned westward, they conquered Georgia and Armenia and Bulgaria, even got as far west as Hungary. And Urgadai also campaigned, campaigned in China, he oversaw the downfall of the Jin dynasty. He even sent troops into India. But the empire wasn't to stay unified. After years and years, decades of growth, even after Urgadai's death, Genghis Khan's grandchildren fought increasingly savagely amongst themselves. And eventually, the infighting became so bad that the empire broke apart into four separate parts in 1294. It was simply too large to stay, to stay unified. At its, at its peak in 1279, it stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Pacific Ocean, the largest contiguous land empire the world has ever seen. And the man who forged it from nothing, Genghis Khan, is left with, well, a rather less mixed legacy than he deserves, I think. History's view of Genghis Khan, as we've said, is broadly speaking positive. He's remembered not only for his grand conquest, but also for being meritocratic, tolerant of cultural and religious differences within his realm and, and for bringing about a great interconnectedness between East and West through ideas, through culture, through trade. I mean, money flowed from East to West and West to East, East under Genghis Khan and people were enriched in both a figurative and literal sense from this new interconnectedness that this vast realm brought about. He supported science and education. He was largely blind to ethnic or classist divisions and he, he was incredibly forward-thinking when it came to many social, political, and military reforms. On the other hand, he was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. And while he did spare cities that surrendered, he was ruthless in exterminating any who resisted him, and those who weren't killed were enslaved. Nowhere was this more obvious, of course, than with his conquest of Khwarezmia, and the Muslim world tends to take a dimmer view of Genghis Khan as a result when compared against those in, in, in Europe or in Eastern Asia. It's said that the, the population of Persia or modern-day Iran only recovered to its pre-13th century levels last century. So great were the depredations of the Mongols as they ravaged their way across half the world. 
Even after his death, the Mongol Empire would go on to shape and influence world affairs. For instance, it's likely that the Black Death in Europe was introduced by those travelling along the by then extensive Mongol trade routes. So however you slice it, it's undeniable, at least, that Genghis Khan's influence and impact on history was absolutely monumental, for better or worse. A mixed legacy, then, for the man who founded the Mongol Empire, forging it in blood and changing the shape of world history forevermore. But that's it. That is at last the end of the story of Genghis Khan across two parts. So I hope you enjoyed that. But I mean, it does kind of fly in the face of the intended purpose of, you know, the new direction we're taking with the podcast in terms of trying to get these stories down into condensed bite-sized pieces. But hey, well, maybe maybe I'll manage to do a one-parter next week. We'll see. Anyway, I do hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you once again to Mason for sending it in. If you want to follow in Mason's exalted footsteps, halfhousehistory.net, there is a contact form there where you can get in touch with the show. Send in your feedback, send in any ideas you've got, not just for uh, topics for the podcast, but of course, any merch ideas that you want to see. We've had a couple that have come in already. I'm going to see if any of them are workable and uh, we might see a refreshing of the uh, the merch shop in the coming uh, days. And, well, I say days, definitely not going to be days. Let's say week. Let's say weeks to months. I think that's that's probably going to be a bit safer. Anyway, if you want to head over to the merch shop and see what's available now, you can do so. There's a, a link on the website and, of course, a link to support the show directly on Patreon. Thank you. We have a uh, a couple of people trickling in every week as new supporters of the show. So if you've... Uh, if you want to jump on board, hey, look, I'm not going to say there's never been a better time to do it because there certainly have been better times, like when I was giving away free stuff to all new patrons, not doing that at the moment. But hey, there's certainly been worse times. For instance, when, I don't know, the patron was just there and didn't have any benefits on it. Right now, you get all sorts of stuff. Early access to episodes, show notes, uncut episodes with all the burps and farts left in. Um, uh, and of course, let's not forget, exclusive patron-only merch. That The only way you can get it is by, uh, by signing up to be a, a patron member. So uh, don't delay. Do it today. Call to action. There we go. Effective branding and marketing. Let's go. Anyway, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about who you feel largely ambivalent. And I'll see you back here next week for more half House History. Until then... Leaving you with a question posed on Reddit by TwinsFan68, and it's a good one too. Why would a great Mongol leader like Genghis Khan name himself after a Pokemon? <laughs> <laughs>